if you please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. If you're looking at a fairly long passage this morning, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. I'm just going to begin by reading verses 14 and 15. Acts chapter 2. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Let us pray. Father, we do humbly ask that you would again open your word to us. And by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you would give us understanding, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would stir our hearts, that we would take in the word as a seed planted in the soil of our hearts that might bear a harvest for your glory. We ask that you would sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. We pray, Father, that we might learn from your scriptures, and that those things in our minds that we hold that are false, that you would bring them to light, and that you would correct them through your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Coming to this passage, um, known as Peter's first sermon, was somewhat humbling when I realized that I was most likely going to preach a longer sermon about Peter's first sermon than Peter's first sermon. But what was really humbling is that in my longer sermon, I probably wouldn't say as much as Peter did. I wouldn't be as concise, as compact, and yet as powerful as Peter's sermon. Remarkably, as I look back to my uh, seminary career and particularly the courses we took on homiletics, which is um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called it an abomination, but it is the, the art of preaching. We didn't study this sermon, to my recollection, at all. We studied the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. We studied the sermons of Charles Spurgeon. We studied the sermons of, of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones which was somewhat ironic considering his opinion of homiletics. And I thought that at the time. But we didn't study Peter's first sermon. It's rarely used in this example in homiletics. Um, but it is theologically incredibly solid. And it is remarkably comprehensive in what he covers. It's also evangelistically effective. One of the most effective sermons we have in history. 3,000 people were added that day to the church. I don't know if anyone has done that well in a day. But it is incredibly short. And within Reformed theology, that was its greatest fault. It was too short. It certainly was a lot shorter than anything Jonathan Edwards ever preached. Uh, much shorter than Charles Spurgeon's average sermon. And throughout the history of the church... Uh, men have seen that the longer the sermon, somehow the, the, the better the message. But I think we need to consider Peter. Um, and to be fair, we don't know that this was the entire sermon. Okay, This was Luke's account of the sermon. 
and, and we need to, to be fair and say, you know what, it may have been a little bit longer. Uh, chances are, Peter, however, um, you know, being an unlettered man or fisherman from Galilee, probably didn't know the fine points of homiletics when he stood up on this Pentecost. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit, which within Reformed theology and Reformed homiletics is the earnest prayer of every preacher who stands in the pulpit, and that is to be filled with the same Holy Spirit. And if a man in the pulpit today can do as well as Peter did on this day of Pentecost, then, um, then he is indeed blessed. I do think if we look at Peter's sermon, and again, maybe this is, the, this is either the, the Reformed pastor in me or the engineer in me, you do see an outline. Three points and a conclusion. Isn't that amazing? I'm just going to give it to you very, very um, briefly. It's, it's a very Christ-centered sermon, of course. And there are three distinct points which relate to Christ, but even more so to God the Father. The first point was God attested to Jesus. God validated the ministry of Jesus. The second point is you killed him. And the third point is, God raised him from the dead. Well, those are pretty powerful points right there. But the conclusion of all this is that now he is both Lord and Christ. I wonder if that statement has the same impact on us today as it had in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost. See, that was the conclusion. That was the logical following, the theological following of what I just said. God attested to Jesus. This is my man. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead. Now, he is both Lord and Christ. In so few words, Peter cuts through major controversies that will arise in the church very early on in its history and continue throughout 2,000 years. We have them with us still today. He cuts through the error of dispensationalism. As we're going to see, these, Peter said, are the last days. He cuts through the error of Arminianism because Peter will present to us predestination alongside of human responsibility. And he cuts through another heresy that is very popular in the church today, in Western evangelicalism. It's called the Lordship Debate. And we will talk about that briefly as well. So you can spend weeks in Peter's first sermon, and trust me, many have. Okay? You, you can see their commentaries, you can see their sermons. They spend a long time talking about Peter's sermon, but, but I think it would lose its potency. I think it would lose its punch. In fact, I think it is often better just to read Peter's sermon in a sitting, not even the entire chapter, chapter 2. Just start in verse 16 and read on through verse 36 and meditate on what Peter has to say and what I hope to offer rather than to try to exegete the sermon, to pull apart verse by verse. I'd rather offer a few points to look for as you read the sermon yourself and hopefully reread it many times. Because indeed, I think it is one of the most powerful sermons that has been preached in the history of Christianity. 
for 2,000 years. Peter says in verse 15, These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. I commented on that last week. It seemed like an interesting way of, of refuting the intoxication of the disciples to say that it's too early in the day to be drinking. But this was also a feast day, and I want to point out that they would not yet have broken their fast. The ninth, uh, before the ninth hour, the nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour of the day, the Jews would not yet have broken their fast on the feast day. And that is what he's really alluding to, that don't be ridiculous. This is the day of Pentecost. This is a feast day. We haven't even broken our fast yet. How could we be drunk? And he points out to them that this is not intoxication. This is inspiration. And he turns to the prophet Joel, and we read in verse 16, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all my mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. He asserts a very eschatological message here on Pentecost, using a term that, that has led to a great deal of dissension and division within Christianity, and that is the last days. We've been taught for the last hundred or so years that the last days haven't come yet. And that we've been taught that we won't even be here during the last days because the church will be raptured. But Peter says, these are the last days. It shall come about in the last days, God says. And Peter has just said, this is what was spoken of by God through the prophet Joel. One of the problems with Christian eschatology that I think keeps it from being biblical eschatology is that it has no connection with Jewish eschatology of the Old Testament. It it's kind of starts on its own and, and goes forward from there. Now this has been complicated by the notion that has been in the church all through its history that God is doing something completely different with the church than he was doing with Israel. And therefore, we separate the two so that even if Israel has an eschatology, well, that doesn't really pertain to us. And then the teaching comes along that tells us, yes, indeed, Israel did have an eschatology, but that's been put on hold. And it will only start up again sometime in the future in the 70th week of Daniel. So there are those within the Christian evangelistic or evangelical church that teach the Jews had an eschatology, but they teach it in a way that really takes away all its power because it is never fulfilled. It's really a forlorn hope is what they had because in the end it didn't come to pass. But the Old Testament does have a very powerful eschatology and one of the central facets, in fact, I would go so far as to say the foundational characteristic of what the Jews looked for in the age to come was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to I give you some verses that are really just a, a cross-section of the law and the prophets, and these are, are only a few out of many that show us that the, the faithful Jew was looking for God to do something in his heart and in the heart of the nation. 
And that something involved the Spirit of God. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Moses had already said in the earlier chapter that you do not have a heart to obey. And yet that's, that's the fundamental aspect of the law, is it not? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And God says, the day is coming when I will circumcise your heart so that you may love him with all your heart and all your soul. Isaiah chapter 11 begins, uh, not really begins, but it was very early on the solidifying of the concept of a promised one, a Messiah. In chapter 11 of Isaiah we read, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Now I point that out because as we read the Messianic prophecies, the Spirit of God was what marked him out as Israel's Messiah. And we also read that later in the Gospels and here in the book of Acts. It is the Spirit of God that makes the difference. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 26. This is the Gospel according to Ezekiel. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall be careful to observe my ordinances. That is the same that God promised back in Deuteronomy 30. Over here, he calls it the circumcision of the heart. But here in Ezekiel, he says, I will take out your heart and give you a new one. And I will put my spirit, again, the spirit of God. And then, of course, Joel chapter 2. And it will come about after that time that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. They had an eschatology. An eschatology that looked forward to God finishing the deliverance, the exodus that he had begun. Finishing the, the law that he had given. Finishing the reconciliation that he had started between man and God. And all of this centered on the outpouring of God's Spirit. And that is what we witness on the day of Pentecost. This is the error of dispensationalism in all its forms. And that is the failure to prioritize the advent of the Spirit in the eschatology of the Old Testament. Essentially, dispensational eschatology is almost entirely political. And by political, I don't mean Republican and Democrat. I mean political in the sense of a civil society, a nation, a people that all have one particular king. It's political in the sense that the religious establishment is integrated with the political it's political in the sense that it is absent of any reference to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the true eschatology of the Bible. But the apostles recognized this true sign of the end times. They recognized the age in which they now were living. And all through the New Testament, we will learn that they considered themselves to be in the last days. 
They also would realize, perhaps not in Acts chapter 2, but at least in Acts chapter 11, they would come to the realization that this same outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the manifestation and the evidence of God bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom. Just as Joel said, at that time, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, on all flesh. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, speaking of the Old Testament history, he said, Now these things were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages has come. The age of the Spirit is not some eschatological plan B. The age of the Spirit is that to which the eschatology of the Old Testament pointed throughout its law and its prophets. We are in the last days, no matter how long they may turn out to be, because God has poured out His Spirit in fulfillment of His promise. But it's Jesus' relationship to the Spirit that I think is most central to Peter's message. Later we'll read that Jesus possessed the Spirit without measure. Jesus was validated in His ministry through signs and wonders that He Himself said were done by the Spirit of God. It was claimed by the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus' response was that very enigmatic passage about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But what he says is, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. John the Baptist, who, who didn't always recognize what was happening, bless his heart, Neither did the disciples. But you know, John didn't, didn't quite figure out what it was supposed to look like. Nonetheless, he did know exactly what to look for when it came time to transfer the mantle of his ministry to the one for whom he was just the trailblazer. And he said, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, again, is a central character in the eschatology, but also the messianic expectation of the nation, Israel, of the people of God. The Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh was the divine manifestation of the end times. But it wouldn't just come down like rain out of heaven. It would come down upon a man to whom we are introduced in the Old Testament as the servant of Yahweh, the promised one, the son of man, the seed of Jesse, all of these different names. Eventually, the seed of woman would be united to the Holy Spirit in an eschatological manner that brought about the end of the age. And so when Peter says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. We hear that with very Christian ears. 
thinking of the miracles that we read about in the Gospels. But listening to it with Jewish ears, they would hear Peter saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the one God upon whom God has set his spirit, just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. But the Jews turned him over to the Romans who killed him. In verse 23, This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Was this the free will choice of Israel? To reject her Messiah, to abandon and betray him to the godless pagans, and to see him crucified? Well, it most certainly was. Was this the eternal purpose and plan of God? That his Messiah, upon whom he had set his spirit, and for whom he had validated all the miracles to die on a cross? Yes, it most certainly was. And verse 23 of chapter 2 is perhaps the most powerful passage in Scripture for the refutation of Arminianism, but also the proper establishment of what is known as Calvinism. Listen to it again. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, Peter could not really have been more specific in saying that the betrayal and death of the Messiah was at every step along the way the eternal purpose and plan of God. Well, that's Calvinism, right? That's the sovereignty of God. That he has wisely foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. But then Jesus, or Peter goes on, you nailed to a cross. You killed him. Well, that's Arminianism, right? Because we're taught that if God is sovereign in man's life, then how can man be responsible for what he does? Is that not, that's not the basis of Arminianism? That if man does not have true free will to do whatever he would like to do, then he cannot be held responsible for what it is he does. It's not that the Arminian says, the devil made me do it. The Arminian says of the Calvinist, God made me do it. I had no choice. It was predetermined. And those are the straw men and the caricatures. But on the other hand, there have been those within the Reformed tradition that have said that because God is sovereign, then it truly doesn't matter what man does. Teaching the sovereignty of God as if it were kismet, the Islamic doctrine of fate, an all-powerful force that molds men into its will, men having no will of their own. But here we have verse 23. God delivered him up according to his sovereign wisdom, his predetermined plan and foreknowledge. You killed him. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Peter addresses in this sermon three of the most dangerous thoughts that have ever entered into Christian theology, and this is the first one. One of the most dangerous thoughts ever to have entered into the Christian church 
is the thought that Jesus did not have to die. The thought that Israel might have and could have accepted Jesus as her Messiah, which would have set up the Davidic kingdom and the millennial reign 2,000 years ago. Jesus did not have to die. In support of that thought, I want to quote very appropriately considering where we are in the scriptures from the dispensationalist teacher and author Dwight Pentecost. That's his name. That was his name. He passed away. In his book, Things to Come, he states that if the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, God would have developed a different plan for the salvation of the Gentiles. Isn't that a dangerous thought? That is a very dangerous thought. I mean, we do think about, and we do ask the question, sometimes we even ask it out loud, what might have happened had Adam not sinned? You know, we ask those kind of questions. Don't ever try to write down an answer, though, because that gets preserved after you for people like me to quote from the pulpit. Okay? If you have a theory, don't just say it, don't, and then deny it. Don't write it down. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, did not have to die. Jesus himself said, for this reason I have been born, for this reason I have come into the world. His death, his crucifixion, Peter considered to be fully within the eternal redemptive plan of God. And yet, this by no means diminished the guilt of the Jews in his death. Calvinism that emphasizes the sovereignty of God apart from the responsibility of man is false and unbiblical. Arminianism that emphasizes the free will of God at the expense of the sovereignty of God and his purpose is false and unbiblical. Peter, in his short sermon, got it right. This man, foreordained by the sovereignty of God and his purpose, you killed. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. We may not be able to put those two things together in our heads, but I have frequently and will probably more frequently in the future quote, I think it was uh, J.A. Alexander who said that sovereignty and human responsibility are like the two sides of the same roof, the peak of which meets beyond the clouds. He says, he who has, who emphasizes one over the other, has but half a roof over his head. Very well put. And very biblical. The caricature, and I just want to briefly kind of defend the Reformed tradition the caricature that is made of a Calvinist needs to be understood, I think, as being just that, a straw man, not, not a real teaching. No Calvinist denies the freedom, properly understood, of human choice. No Calvinist denies that when we decide to sin, when we choose to act according to our nature, when we choose to disobey God, we are acting with the freest of will. There is no coercion, and there is no one to blame but ourselves. 
No Calvinist denies the full responsibility of every man's action. No Calvinist denies that these things are still comprehended within the eternal, unchangeable, and unstoppable will of God. And so this is the second most dangerous thought that has entered into the teaching of Christianity, and that is that the will of man can thwart the will of God. And that has evolved and mutated into another modern but ancient theology that's called open theism, which teaches that not only can the will of man thwart the will of God, but the will of man is what determines the, the future of which God is not aware. God is aware, according to the open theist, of those things that can be known. But he cannot be aware of those things that cannot be known, which includes the free will decisions of men in the future. Now, this is taught at a very high level within Western evangelicalism. Okay. So, I think we go back to the scriptures. We don't go back to Jonathan Edwards. We don't go back to Charles Spurgeon. We go back to Peter. And we see that God's sovereignty is in no way thwarted. Its path is not turned to the left nor to the right by the free will decisions of men. But there's one more most dangerous thought that Peter slays here in this sermon. Jesus is Savior, but His Lordship is optional. This is known as the Lordship debate, and it has been raging for about the last 30 years since the teaching from Dallas Theological Seminary of Zane Hodges who maintain that we can accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we need not obey Him or submit to Him as our Lord. Now, don't get me wrong, Zane Hodges was not a libertarian. He fully encouraged believers to willingly obey God, but he felt that by tying our sanctification to our justification, we were creating a works salvation. So now there's a movement within evangelicalism that's called free grace. Salvation is of free grace, but obedience is a work. It is by the grace of God that we believe in Jesus Christ, and that secures for us eternal life in heaven. But it is by our own will, and it does come out of an Arminian teaching, by the way, it is our own will that we choose to obey Jesus Christ, and that turns out into rewards when we're in heaven. So heaven by grace, rewards by work. Christ as Savior to all who believe. Christ as Lord to those who obey. What did Peter have to say that? Well, in verse 36, at the end of his sermon, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit knew that this modern heretical teaching was coming. 
Let all of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And the emphasis in the Greek actually is on the word Lord. It literally says, made him Lord, or made Lord him, the, the, the him is afterward, made Lord him and Christ. Everybody wants a Christ. Everybody wants a deliverer. Everybody wants someone to come get us out of this mess. History is replete with men who were welcomed with open arms because he got a particular society out of a mess. But what he extracted from them for that cleaning up, they weren't too happy with. Nobody wants a Lord. And so this teaching this lordship teaching, this optional obedience teaching, is really spreading like wildfire in American evangelical churches. One of the most popular Southern Baptist preachers down in Atlanta advocates this teaching. Peter didn't. He says that this Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, God has made kurios and Christos. Again, these would have been words that the Jewish hearers, who all, by the way, understood Greek in this time, these would have resounded with meaning. They would have brought together the ministry of the king and the priest the anointed ones in Israel, the two offices in Israel that were anointed with the oil, which was what? Symbolic of the Holy Spirit. He would have been saying, these two offices have been united in one, which we read in Zechariah chapter 6. He would have been saying that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the son of man in Daniel who approaches the Ancient of Days and receives the eternal kingdom, never to lose it again. These two offices, these two witnesses of God's grace, Peter, in one short phrase, brings together by God's authority into one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, he is our Savior. He is Christ the Anointed One. He is the promised Messiah. But God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord, King, Ruler, to whom all obedience is due and expected, and Christ. And what God has joined together, let not man tear asunder. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in Jesus Christ. What you have done through your eternal Son is so awesome. We are humbled by its majesty and grateful for your sovereignty and your wisdom that is without fault. For we know, Father, that no mere human could have been made by you both Lord and Christ. And we thank you, Father, that you anointed Jesus, that you attested to him, and that you did not allow him to see decay.
but rather you raised him from the dead, and that he is now seated at your right hand, both Lord and Christ. We pray that his glory would be exalted in the church and from the church in the world. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.